welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey, really, this week I am joined by Dr. Anas Nader, and he is an A&E doctor and co-founder and CEO of Patchwork Health. Patchwork Health is helping healthcare organisations deliver sustainable workforce planning and gives all healthcare staff access to flexible working. They are currently working with over 70 NHS sites and have saved the NHS an estimated 40 million quid to date whilst enabling almost 3 million hours to be staffed sustainably each year. Uh, Welcome, mate. How are you doing? I am good, James. Uh, Really happy to be here with you today. It's been a while, hasn't it, sir? Uh, I was just saying off air, like I remember you talking about, very coyly talking about the idea for Patchwork Health when you and I were sat in a pub uh, and you were saying it's going to be big, man. Like I've got this idea, like there's a few players, but I'm going to do it differently. And in my mind, like, yeah, 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 of course you are, mate. And here you are, (laughs) CEO of this empire, Patchwork Health. Uh, Mate, it's a super fascinating journey, dude. Oh man, thank you. You're very kind. I wouldn't call it an empire yet, but um... <laughs> tell me the story. Tell me the story, like because this because this goes back, right? This this goes back to being yeah. uh, an innovation fellow or similar um, at Chelsea and Westminster, yeah, yeah, and yeah, you yeah. spotting an idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. It might even start before that, man. Have you always been an entrepreneur? Like, t- tell me the whole. Tell me the whole story. All right. So let's let's go all the way back, and 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 we'll talk a little bit about that early days, early days when with, with the naivety of not knowing what I'm setting myself up to, <laughs> uh, which sometimes is, which I I, I totally believe uh, one of the things that makes first-time founders do what they do is the naivety of thinking they Absolutely. can do what they can do. Had we all known what we're getting into, probably most of us might have not done it. Uh, but I'm glad I did. But let's go back. Uh, so really, patchwork health is my third act. Um, my second act was being doctor in the NHS. Um, uh, but my first act goes all the way back in, when I uh, was in Toronto, Canada, where I grew up in. So as you might know, James, I've done medicine as a second degree. I was a grad entry doctor. So my first degree was back in Toronto, Canada, where I did a, a bachelor's of science in human physiology at the University of Toronto. But I was also a self-taught coder. I was um, kind of, uh, you know, learned some basic JavaScript, PHP. I even did a small stint with Flash, an action script, if anyone nice. knows what that is, RIP Flash. <laughs> the thing that's constantly blocked in browsers now, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 now, because it's no longer safe and secure, and even Adobe doesn't work <laughs> anymore. But that was back in the early 2000s, where you can build them real cool, nifty apps on Flash. And so I kind of dabbled with with, with some of that, and I just kind of taught myself how, how, how to code and, and, and build some basic websites. And that was during my, like, teen years, early 20s, when I was doing my undergraduate degree. But then I kind of serendipitously fell into a project in Toronto at St. Michael's Hospital with a renowned cardiologist, Dr. Casella, um, who, who I worked with as a summer project. And he was about to retire. And he was, um, he, he was award-winning. He, he, there was even an award named after him in medical education. And so he's an excellent educator as well as a consultant cardiologist and he had a unique way of teaching medical students and nursing students how to interpret ECGs, electrocardiograms of the heart. But because he was about to retire, he said, listen, I've got this collection of thousands of ECGs, obviously anonymized, but ready to be used. And I use them for teaching. And I've got a way of 
helping students understand a 2D image into a 3D uh, kind of structure of the electrophysiology of the heart. And I'd like to build a website. Mind you, this is a, a man who's, who's at that point was in his 70s. He's still with us, by the way. He's in his 80s now. <laughs> late 80s. Um, and he was, um, he's like, you know, do you know anyone who can help me build a website to, to, to transfer a lot of my knowledge and, and people can continue to learn from my collection of ECGs? And I was like, well, I kind of, I can't do that. How about I do that for you? And, and obviously I was kind of maybe have over-exaggerated my abilities <laughs> to be able to do that. And he was, and he maybe read through that, but he's like, why not? Let's go for it. And by the way, he became one of my first and probably favorite mentors ever um, because he saw in me someone who is willing to try to do something and learn along the way even though I was so underqualified to do it, mm. um, but was willing to give me the chance and the opportunity. So I spent like the first few weeks of that summer just really diving into every coding book I can pick up, try to add a little bit more to my skills that I already had previously. And we started building this website and we started creating that database of, of those ECGs. And, and it's, a few months later, we launched it. And a year after that, and by the way, it's pro bono. It was free. It was just educational uh, for, for, for students around the world. And a few months later, or a year later, we end up with over 50,000 users worldwide. Whoa. He wanted to be for Canadian students. More than 50% of the audience organically with zero marketing budget, more than 50% were from the Southern Hemisphere. So South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia. And that's when I made the penny dropped for me. I really understood the power of the web where a simple platform that had a, a decent database of ECGs and some instructional videos of how to interpret those ECGs with some animations on Flash managed to reach tens of thousands of students around the world. People who would never dream to have access to such an incredible educator now have access to that educator. So for me, that was the moment where I just I recognize that this is going to be part of what I will do in my life. As much as I was still in my pre-medical years, preparing to go to med school, there was that summer, that one-year project. And by the way, the project mm -hmm. carried on for a few years after, before I handed over to, once I moved to London and um, I've, I've handed over to other teams to look after it. But, um, but that, was, that was kind of a, a transform, transformational chapter of my, of my career. Um, I went on to do a master's program in Toronto after my undergraduate. And, and that master's program was actually Dr. Seller recommending me to do that master's program. And that program took my technical skills to a little bit more of a professional level in building web products for healthcare. I worked in that space for a while and then decided to actually finally make that leap and study medicine. So I was already a mature student going to med school. I was in my mid-20s. I was 25, 26 at that point. Um, and I also was at that stage of my life where I wanted to kind of live in a different country and live in Europe. And so London was the obvious choice for me. And I was very happy to have joined the Imperial College Medical School. That's where actually I met Jane, my co-founder. So yeah, so I moved to London. I started studying medicine. That was the beginning of my second act of being a doctor and graduated in the four-year program because it was a graduate entry program, started working in the NHS. And I think at that stage, again, during med school, actually, before graduating, Jing and I did a few projects. Um, that's how we kind of connected. Uh, a few kind of digital projects. We had um, an online journal, medical journal, a global health journal called Cafe Communique, 
he was the editor. I was kind of the techie building the website. Uh, it was a basic content management system. And actually, again, one of those things that we couldn't find a way to make it sustainable because there's no money in that space. But we actually managed to get quite a few thousand readerships and quite a lot of authors, volunteers, and professors at Imperial and other places who are just writing content in this online global health journal. And again, that's where Jing and I got to know each other and how to work together and build kind of friendship out of that. Uh, but again, that's another project. Uh, EG Made Simple is still going. This one, we actually had to sunset because we just couldn't sustain it. Um, and we graduated med school. He was off back to Liverpool, where he was originally from, to do his junior doctor years. I stayed in London. At that point, I met my wife. So although the plan was study medicine and go back to Canada, things never go to plan. Um, <laughs> I met my wife. And uh, so I had more reasons than not stay in London. And I started working as a junior doctor. And a few years in, I started getting a little bit restless and frustrated because that journey that led me to be a doctor, whether back in Toronto or even the things I did during med school, have always shaped me to believe that I will have a portfolio career. I will be someone who will enjoy clinical medicine. I've chosen it for a reason. Enjoy that kind of direct patient care. But also, I will be able to pursue my interest, whether in global health or in, in digital health. But obviously, the realization hit me that I wasn't able to do that, that my career in medicine was going to be highly prescribed, very rigid, little flexibility in deciding how when to work. Um, and, and especially for junior doctors in general, uh, it's, as you always know, James, it's so prescriptive and so out of your control. You end up where you end up, where you end up working, however you end up working next to no say or control in the process. Compared to any other industry, um, whether it's a professional industry, a, a gilded professional industry like lawyers and dentists and others, or, or, or not, um, it's uniquely rigid and uniquely uh, inflexible. And I thought, obviously, I was the odd one out because, you know, I had an orthodox route into medicine, but I obviously wasn't. I was probably part of a generation of doctors and nurses who have been kind of having the same experience and, and building the same frustrations. And then I met with Jing again, reconnected with him after a few years of not really seeing each other because we're living apart in different cities, reconnected with him at a medtech conference in London. That was summer of 2016. And we were both kind of talking about um, how we're probably going to take a gap year. As you know, many junior doctors take gap years in their training. So we're about to take a gap year and go pursue some other interests and projects and come back to our training later on. And and, but then at that point, we were kind of starting to exchange notes and say, well, during that gap year, what agencies are we going to work with? Because the default is you're going to work with a locum agency to keep your stethoscope fresh, right? And then, you know, do the things that you want to do around, around that. And as you can imagine, being in a medtech conference, one thing led to the other. And we're like, wait a minute, shouldn't there be an app for that by now? Why are we even talking about agencies? And so we just started ideating. And the next morning with more sober minds, we decided that what do we even know about healthcare, workforce management, HR, finance, compliance, payroll, recruitment, all the things that go around temporary staffing and flexible working, you know, we're probably kind of underprepared for this. So let's probably shelf the idea and come back to it one day when we feel we're ready for it. So Jing went on to do his innovation role at Nova in, in Liverpool with Alder Hay. So took an innovation job there. And I landed the job at Chelsea Westminster Hospital, uh, part of the first cohort of clinical innovation fellows. That was a unique program, to be honest. It's one of 
we were the first cohort. It was an actually highly progressive um, group of people reporting directly to C-suite that had very interesting approach in creating this program because they really wanted to get clinicians with a unique background, with something different about them, whether consultancy background, tech background, research background, whatever it is, clinicians with an edge, I guess, to join the transformation team, reporting directly to the C-suite to help the trust go through the journey they were going on through either improvement programs, SIPs or QUIPs or quality improvement, cost improvement, uh, patient uh, transformation um, programs. And and so I, I, I was really, you know, lucky and privileged to be one of five that was selected for that program. Um, and that's kind of where the, line, the stars kind of lined up because one of the two projects that were handed to me to look at, one of them was EPR transformation and implementing the new CERNA EPR. But the second one was to look at their medical agency spend and work with the operational teams and HR teams to devise a better way of managing the medical bank to reduce the reliance on agencies and help the trust be a bit more, you know, the employer of choice for flexible workers, directly that is. And for me, that was like the perfect opportunity to say, wait, hold a minute. I kind of, up until now, I completely understood the challenge from a clinician's point of view. It was a lived and witnessed experience. So I got it. I knew why clinicians wanted more flexibility and more choice and more control. But I never understood, obviously, the challenges from the employer's side, from the manager's side. And I think this is kind of the probably second most important, you know, if I go back to that first Toronto one, this is the second most important uh, chapter because it allowed me to um, deep dive a space, an industry that I never understood and work as, as an insider to, to an enterprise like Chelsea Westminster Hospital to work with their HR teams, their finance team, their people team, their payrolls team, um, the frontline teams, um, the senior and junior clinicians who, you know, anyone and everyone who was part of temporary staffing to really understand the entirety um, of their workflows and, and where the frictions are and the pain points are that led to the mess that we were in, which really the entire NHS was in, um, in terms of temporary staffing. And six months into that job, I felt like, I actually think we're now ready to do the patchwork idea, right? And so I went back to Jane and I said, you know, you're doing your job in Elder Hay and I'm doing this job at Chelsea, but I think the idea we talked about six months ago, I think we can actually bring it to life now because I am in this organization and I think we can try and do something with them. So yeah, and that's kind of where it all started. Heck of a story, mate. And there's so much that I want to talk to you about here because... There's certain, yeah. there's certain elements of this that I think you, either by luck or design, you were, you were set up mm. for the stars aligning here. And the first one, you, mm. you, I mean, you glossed over this relatively quickly, but I think this is actually a key yeah. component. First, before anything, self-taught coder in a couple of different languages as well, by the sounds yeah. of things. My yeah. hypothesis here has always been, having spoken to people like yourself who coded first in medicine, and I've talked about this in this podcast a fair amount, is that people who can code and then do medicine don't just see problems. They see problems mm. and a solution. And actually, that seems to mm. have been your framework. You seem kind of emancipated mm. from the 
what are quite frustrating shackles of those conversations in the doctor's mess of, and this is a problem, and this is a problem, mm. and this makes it worse, and I know, and this makes it worse, and blah, blah, blah. Because you can actually, you can actually mm. see a way out. You, you can actually plot, you can actually mm. see the light at the end of the tunnel here and have a go at plotting your way from A to B. And it seems that that, at least in part, has given you a framework mm. for grasping opportunity because you then talked about this educator teacher in Toronto that became your mentor that you clearly have a lot of respect for. There's a certain you know glint in your eye when you're talking mm. about this person that's clearly inspired you in a big way. But even then, you know, that allowed you at the first scrap of an opportunity to take it. This is a person mm. you wanted to impress. This is a mm. person that you saw mm. being a key to your next step. And you thought, I'm going to help this person because I can, because I do have this ability. I can mm. code. And that got you addicted to impact by the sounds of things because you built this platform. And again, self-taught coding skills, you can build a platform. You saw this notion of I do a bit of work and get a lot of impact. And I'm not you know, being reductive the amount of work it took, but relative to the mm -hmm. impact, I put in X yeah, yeah. hours and the value is a multiple of that. And you, you seem you, you yeah. seem to have learned that impact at that point of view and then obviously all the rest mm. of it. My question here is, you obviously do a lot of workforce stuff that we're going to come on to. You, you, you probably still interact with a lot of junior doctors or at least know of the pains and, mm. and plenty of people wanting to do other things on portfolio careers. When we think about the, the problems that the NHS has and the recovery, and, and there are many and there are multiple ways of looking mm. at this, it's a loaded question, but coders mm. that become doctors, is that something we could do at scale? Is that worth it? Is that something we could encourage? Oh, 100%. Whether it's do coders become doctors or doctors become coders, um, we are 100%. In fact, I, 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 if, if I get to say one thing to medical schools is, Basics of coding should be part of medical school teaching. Um, right, so you're bull you're properly bullish on this. Oh, very bullish on this. I mean, I could go as far and say, really, when it goes down to high school education, everyone should learn the basics of coding universally. Um, because even if you're not coding in your job, because to be clear, in the world of patchwork, I didn't code. In the early days, I was the product. I was a, you can call me a technical product manager in the early days, but I had to hire some, some engineers to help me build the platform. I didn't write a lot of the code in the early days of Patrick. Now, of course, now that we, we've, we've grown as a business, I don't write the code. But having had a, 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 almost a decade between the age of 16 to 26, almost coding all the time, uh, on and off, but, but coding being a big part of my life, it allowed me to understand the world of code, understand the power of what can be done and the limitations of what can't be done. It allowed me to think logically about the problems that need to be solved and appreciate the role tech can play. And that allowed me then to be part of teams where I'm able to have meaningful, productive conversations around digital and tech and, and what we can do to solve to solve our, our problems. And I think, therefore, I'm... I'm as we move, and especially as we move to the world of not just digital health, but the role of, of machine learning and AI in medicine becoming one of the biggest enablers of the next 50 years, mm -hmm. then any medical student studying today and about to have a 50-year career in healthcare is going to face a very different industry than the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And my worry is a lot of medical schools are still teaching doctors to live in a world of healthcare of the last 50 years, not the next 50 years. How can you 
be a doctor or a nurse even, or any really healthcare professional, um, delivering care side by side with digital tools, some in the future, much more autonomous digital tools, diagnostics and, and, and AI-driven digital tools, without understanding how these tools were built or how they think and how they do what they do, even on the most basic level. So I absolutely think whilst I kind of, it wasn't planned that way for me, uh, it certainly was an asset, and and I highly recommend it for any doctor. There are great boot camps out there where you can just spend six weeks in a summer in between medical school years and just spend six or 12 weeks in a boot camp. Come out with the basics, basics enough to build a, even an app, but more importantly, that you understand how apps are built. You understand how coders do what they do and how projects come together. So that in the future, whether you are a clinician, an entrepreneur, a hospital manager, if you are able to interact with these either tech companies or these products that these tech companies build and understand how they work and possibly even be part of their journey and be part of a contributor to their to their to their evolution because you are a clinician who understands how tech works. So yeah, I'm very bullish on that. I cannot overemphasize that point. I also love that you said there actually any clinician, any hospital manager. And I think that's that's also a key part yeah. of it. Because what you're talking about there is actually the understanding of the capacity of technology to get us to the next level in, mm. in healthcare. And I think that is it. In the same way, you hear this all the time, right? We don't talk about digital banking anymore. It's just banking in the same way that we shouldn't really be talking about AI coming into healthcare, AI coming into health tech anymore. We should just be considering that that is a technology that we now use. That is healthcare. That is the best way of doing things. And I think what you talked about yeah. there absolutely will get us there. The other thing that I want to talk, talk to you about in your background before we move on to patchwork is this kind of, um, again, stars stars aligning. And by the way, not being reductive again on, on the amount of work put into this, but if you're going to get a co-founder that you know you can work extremely well together, meet them early, yeah. have a relationship with them yeah. for a long time, work together on multiple projects, yeah. which I've got written here, uh, and yeah. then go into something with them when you think, Thank right, you. this is definitely a person to have done this with. The other bit, when you found that person, try and find a very unique way to get access to the problem to immerse yourself into, uh, which you did through the fellowship. So it seems that if you're going <laughs> to do things right and you're going to yeah. do things well, this is easy for you, and us, honestly, you've just, uh, you've just walked into this, mate. <laughs> course there was no work involved yeah. in any of those things <laughs> uh talk to me the perfect way to start a company no honestly man this these are important principles though i think often often these are the things that people don't invest the time to think about yeah um, yeah and they run to the whole issue of like oh how do i fundraise and it's like let's start back to the basics first first of all highly recommend avoid being a solo founder it is a tough job it is a stressful job it's a lonely job you will have doubts. You will have moments where you're kind of about to quit. Um, and yes, you might have incredible people around you, whether investors or employees. It's never the same as a co-founder. So, so I highly recommend at least one co-founder. And often, actually, apparently there have been studies. Apparently, a, 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 a duo is the best combo. Mm -hmm. uh, I read a study a while back, even better than trio. Um, because because it gets a bit too complex. Um, but definitely solo founders have the, the hardest outcomes and the hardest job to do it. So that's my first recommendation. In terms of how Jing and I, yeah, that was a bit of luck there. But as you said, 
we kind of we kind of met at medical school. We did projects together, so we kind of got to know each other's ways of working, and we had the right chemistry. And it was it was actually the fact that we stayed in touch. And as soon as an idea came up, we thought of each other. And, and by the way, we had a few conversations before that where some ideas would come up, would call each other. What do you think of this idea? And one of us probably would be sensible enough to say, no, no, it's too crazy, um, and, or, or probably really not the right the right thing to do or not the right problem. But here's what we were doing at that point. We were trying to find the idea that will get us excited. So my second advice after finding the right founder is don't look for the idea. The idea will find you. Founders who wake up in the morning to say, I want to be a founder for the sake of being, I want to be an entrepreneur for the sake of being an entrepreneur. It's great to want to be an entrepreneur, but don't start the entrepreneurship journey just because you want to be an entrepreneur. Work on the skills that makes you prepared for when the idea comes in, you're ready to, 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 to leap into it. So Coding is a good one. Uh, one that I say all the time, public speaking, good public speaking is, an, is a hugely important skill for an entrepreneur. Um, by the way, little known fact about me, a lot of people don't know that, but I've been recently talking about it a bit more. When I was a teenager, I had a stutter. I had stage fright. I could not be in front of an audience. I would um and ah between every other word. So I was a terrible public speaker. So I wasn't born with the ability to speak, speak publicly. But I had the self-awareness and the advice from, from, from teachers who told me, if you're going to do anything meaningful at life, public speaking will be part of it, no matter what it is. So I started working on it. I started pushing myself to speak publicly, to put myself in environments where I have to present. When the teacher would say something like, who's, who's going to present? I'll nervously put my hands up, regretting as I'm doing it. Wow. And, and I, I, I would do it terribly for a long time until I built the confidence and the ability to do it. So it's, practice makes perfect. But the reason why I say public speaking is so key, because if you think about what an entrepreneur needs to do, whether it is selling a story to an investor, whether, whether it is selling a product and a service to a customer, whether it's selling a dream to an employee, your best tool is your ability to be a great storyteller and a good communicator and an impactful public speaker. So it's one of those skills that whatever you end up doing, however way you end up doing it, having is a strong asset. So knowing tech and coding, basic financial acumen, good public speaking, do those things before you think about the idea Build your core repository of skills and then wait for the idea to find you. Because usually when the idea finds you, it's probably the right timing because we know startups are all about timing. It's probably the right pain point because you've witnessed it or lived it. And you probably, the idea found you amongst a group of people, whether in the place you're working or the people you're working with. So you probably found your early customers. So let the idea find you versus hunting for the idea because Usually when the idea finds you, a lot of things have been automatically validated. You lived it, you've seen it, you're with people who are thinking about it. Great. Now you've got those skills that you've built over the years. Go ahead and launch the idea. So that's, that's kind of, again, what, on reflection, what has worked out in my experience. Mm. I love it. And clearly you lived it, right? In this role at Chelsea and Westminster, you had access, you, were, you mm. described yourself as an insider to the problem, you were given tools and abilities to see that from all different angles and all the rest of it and so that led to patchwork now patchwork i can, I can remember you guys rebranding to patchwork i actually can't remember what you were called before yeah, yeah. which shows how positive that rebrand <laughs> was but 
My question though is, things have looked very, very, very smooth since day one. You guys have done a very, very good job of what I can imagine is that whole duck on water that everybody tries to do, a very, very good job of doing so. But be real with me, right? So the journey to the stratosphere, is that paved with uh, glory the whole way or are there a few uh, skeletons of those battle scars, let's say? Are you you covered in battle scars or is it shiny? Uh, Many. Myself and, and the team, many battle scars along the way. The highs are highs, the lows are lows, as, as, as most entrepreneurs will tell you. But in, in our experience, the early days were just full of uncertainty. So back to the Chelsea one. So what we've done is, I went to, I went to Chelsea Westminster Hospital and I said, listen, I've, I've gone through this journey with you. I understand now the problem from the employer side as well as the clinician side. I've mapped out the processes, I've mapped out the workflows. I've created some wireframes and some concept designs and some workflows that can be digitized. Would you be willing to go on the journey with me? And they were very bullish, very supportive, very keen to provide me the space to experiment and iterate. But obviously, I had to find a little bit of money to get get things going because I had a full-time job at Chelsea. And whilst they allowed me to spend some of my time doing the work I can do, I I need some developers and dev capacity. Luckily, I, I was introduced to an angel investor who wrote us a, a small check just for the proof of concept. And that, um, I'm happy to share that number, it was about £150,000. Mm. So just good enough. And you know, how, you know how dev costs, right? So that was barely enough for a six-month runway with a handful of engineers to just build something. So this was a tin can with duct tape that we built. Absolute <laughs> um, MVP. But we focus on the kind of workflows that really move the needle. So at the end of the six-month pilot, so we did six-month dev and six-month pilot. By the end of 2017, at the end of the pilot, because we launched in the summer of 2017, we've managed to move the needle significantly on Chelsea's numbers. So Chelsea's baseline was about 30% fill rate on the bank, and the rest was agency. We've moved it out to 60 and 70. And by the end of the year, it was about 80% on the bank. So a significant wow. uplift. And so it wasn't even marginal gains. We're talking about 2 to 3x improvement. Uh, roughly 1.2 million pounds annualized savings on the medical bank. Just to clarify here, Anas, just for people that yeah. might not know the differences. So your goal in this early part of Patchwork, your goal really is to go, I yeah. want to move, move hospitals from agency spend, which is expensive, to yeah. bank which yeah. is less. And do yeah. you want to just define that? Yes. What, what does bank mean, et cetera, just so we've got an idea? So, yeah, because I've had people ask me thinking it's a fintech product. I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> it's a staff bank. A staff bank as a concept is basically the hospital's own black book of names that they can go to to ask them to pick up additional shifts. They tend to be mostly your full-time doctors and nurses who pick up overtime shifts but some doctors and nurses, we call them career locums, career, career flexible workers who have quit their full-time job and they just do this as a, as a full-time contract, a day rater, if you wish. And they, they join the bank to be able to book these shifts. Now, traditionally, all of that flexible working is owned by the agency and they charge a high margin. And by the way, agencies have a role to play. The issue is not having no agencies. The issue is the over-dependence on them on BAU staffing. And that was the problem, the NHS. So a few hundred shifts a month in agency is probably reasonable and you probably will need the hard to fill shifts. 
But when you have thousands of shifts and thousands of clinicians, when you have entire A&Es staffed by agency locums for months and months, then you have a real uh, you have a real problem. You have a continuity of care problem and you have obviously a cost problem. So the idea was to transfer the activity from agency to the hospital's own bank, giving the hospital more control over who gets to work when and how, as well as a more cost-efficient way of doing it. From the clinician's point of view, it allows doctors and nurses to have direct access to the hospital, not gatekept, no gatekeeping by a third party. Um, they get to choose more where to work and how to work directly rather than wait for someone to, your agency handler, to tell you what shifts to work, not knowing actually the full visibility of what's available for you to work. There's obviously a lot more um, control and ownership by the clinician. So th- that was the core uh, uh, value proposition. And, and you know, the core platform was an employer's hub that allows the employer to do all the workflows, recruitment, onboard, attraction, recruitment, onboarding, compliance, shift management, a rules engine that allows them to configure it to different specialities, who can work when and how safely, uh, timesheeting and payroll, and everything goes into payments. Um, and from a clinician's point of view, everything I described, but from a doctor or nurse's point of view. So that was the core platform that we built. And yeah, so we've launched that and we've shifted that number from about 30% of, they had about 2,000 shifts a month. So 30% of that was filled on, on agency, on bank and the rest agency. And we flipped that to about 70 to 80%. And I think they've plateaued since then at 85%, which is incredible, by the way, um, compared to national average. Mm. So yeah, we knew we were onto something and we were like, let's, let's take this to market. Let's, let's go beyond Chelsea. Let's take this outside. And so I quit my job, Jim quit his job. Uh, my job, my fellowship was over anyways, because it was a one-year fellowship. So mm-hmm. now, you know, August, 2017, I just went full-time on this. Jim did, did that by the end of the year as well. But we needed to fundraise because again, that was a tiny check. That was going to get us anywhere beyond a few months. So we need to do a proper seed, seed um, raise and so we've been speaking to some angel investors. We're not ready for VCs yet. We were introduced to the Harvard Business School alumni angels. And I pitched to them and a bunch of them and some other kind of high net worth angels were connected. And we managed to get almost half a dozen of them interested. However, no one wanted to be the first check. Everyone's like, who's going to be the first signing up? And then we'll kind of follow. Who's going to start? This that is something we've talked about, man. Who's going to lead? All the time, yeah. right? Who's, angels or VCs? It's always the question: Who's going to lead? Whether it's an whether it's kind of a syndicate of angels or you're yep. going VCs, someone has to take that first leap. And this is where the story is. To go back to your question of like the stories of, of the ups and downs that we don't necessarily always know about. So the first angel who's going to start leading the conversation said, "Listen, you've you've definitely proved something really good. That you've got some product market fit here. You've you've moved the needle significantly with Chelsea." Well, obviously, Chelsea is kind of a friendly trust. You know, it's, it's your trust and you're using it for free. It's a free pilot. And can you prove to me that, yeah, and of course, everyone is nervous. Does the NHS buy stuff like that? Mm-hmm. Can you prove to me you can sell to the NHS? And that's when it was, we were coming down to the last few thousand pounds in the bank account. And we didn't sell anything. And of course, leading up to that, I was having conversations with as many trusts as I can to get them to, you know, to use our product outside of Chelsea. And then there was this tender, and you know how tenders go. Tenders are complex and long. So this this one tender that we're invited to, uh, and we pitched in that tender against very established players and some challengers, but mostly established players. It took them a while to get back to us. But when we were down, at that point, we had a couple employees. I wasn't being paid, but we had a couple employees. So payroll was getting really tight now. And, and we were down to like a few weeks before we were like, what are we going to do now? Are we, are we shutting down? And then 
they call us, they give me a phone call and they said, I'm very happy to let you know that you've actually won the tender wow. and you're going to win our contract. This is a pay, our first paid contract. And I was like, I was, the, I was walking the street. I was like, you know, screaming like a crazy man in excitement <laughs> and happiness. Like we actually sold our first to our first customer. And then he was like, oh, but there's a 10 day standstill period. I'm like, oh no, don't. Cause you know how tenders you have to have a 10 day stand. I was like, listen, I, I get that. And of course I can't tell him I'm about to run out of money either. So I'm like, listen, I, I get 10, but can you just send me an email? Just an email that says that we actually won the tender, but there's a process before you actually give us a contract. And he's like, sure, I can put that in email for you. And he's just done that. And I immediately send that email to our first investor. And thank God. Thank God. He was like, yeah, you've proven, you've proven you can sell. Someone's willing to buy the stuff. Here you go. We'll start. And then we, within a few weeks, we closed that 1.2 million pounds of seed round and, and mm-hmm. we survived that. So that was the, the, the biggest gap, near-death experience we had where it's like, and, and, and I know many startups face that and some, some, some get through that phase and some don't, unfortunately. So I'm always grateful. And they're still our clients, by the way. Five years in, we renewed the Lovely. contract, we retained them. Yeah, we generally have a very good retention rate. I think we have a we have a we have a hundred percent lower retention rate. But that that was the one client who's who's who stayed with us since then. And years after that, I've told him that I'm like, by the way, can I just share something with you? Do you know? I was that? gonna ask actually. Oh yeah, yeah. I said that to them, and they're like, oh wow, we didn't know that. I guess <laughs> I guess we always want. I'm like, yeah, but you still get some of the best services from us. You still get a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. So talk to me about the scale of it now, man. Like talk to me about like where are you guys at now? What are you what are you doing? Yeah. What are the plans for the future? Yeah. So obviously when we after the C stage, we um, built up the tech team. We built up a an implementation of customer success team. One of the lessons we've learned from Chelsea was that as much as we're t- I am a tech evangelist in the ability of tech to 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 make things happen and do the heavy lifting, we've learned that without especially in enterprise SaaS, in enterprise tech, without really good implementation of customer success, even good tech can fail. And because you're going through change management, you're changing old habits, you're changing, and there's tech fatigue in general in healthcare and the NHS. So you need to win hearts and minds, you need to configure systems, you need to train people, you need to sunset old, old systems. So, so we invested heavily in our implementation customer success team, which has become almost one of our defining USPs since then and, and, and beyond. So we, we, we invested in our operate, client operational teams. We obviously built our own in-house tech team and, and started iterating on the product, adding more capabilities and features. We moved from doctors only to doctors, nurses, allied healthcare professionals. We now also provide, uh, we, we, we built the collaborative bank capabilities, which is a big part of the journey that the NHS has been going through, allowing multiple hospitals to come together and create networks of networks of clinicians through collaboration and, and passporting doctors and nurses through hospitals without having to go through these checks again and again. So we'll build some of those really uh, powerful capabilities. And as of 2021, we started, well, 2020, really, we started the R&D side, but 2021 was our big R&D journey into the world of rostering because we have understood from very early on the challenge of workforce management, deployment, flexible working, clinician empowerment is a problem that touches every doctor and nurse across their journey, not just temporary staff. Temporary staffing was a great vehicle for us to start learning about the world of flexible working and workforce management. It's where we want to stop the bleed from a financial point of view for the NHS. But it was always part of our 
total journey, which is to address the entirety of workforce challenges um, and, and whether it's management, deployment or flexible working. So rostering was a very natural mm-hmm. space for us to grow into. 2021 was the journey went on uh, with a few of our NHS partners kind of doing the same journey we did with Chelsea, build it as an insider uh, to the organizations in partnership with the enterprise, uh, massively de-risking the whole build process and making sure we actually achieve product market fit as fast as possible, but also getting this early adopters and early use cases. And um, so, yeah, this year we launched, uh, Strange One was the R&D, the heavy R&D year. This year we properly launched across multiple trusts um, and we've got a few go-lives later on this year as well. We've grown to uh, work with 30 NHS trusts to date, mostly on the bank platform because the rotor platform is a bit newer. Uh, about a, I know you said earlier 70 sites, uh, numbers of other, it's about 100 sites now. Cool. Uh, we also work with the, uh, we work with the MOD, uh, health services. They also have uh, doctors and nurses who work flexibly on the bank. So we work with the MOD. We've kind of adapted our platform to be a bit more compatible with more use cases. So whether it's mental health, secondary care, primary care, uh, community care, MOD. Um, so we, we kind of now are able to work with any healthcare employer really within the UK and hopefully beyond. Mm. We are about 110 strong, probably by the end of the year, about 130. So we're growing both on on the customer facing teams and the R&D teams. Uh, We haven't talked really too much about fundraising beyond series, uh, the C stage. We've we've had two major fundraising rounds. We had a series A round. uh, So the C stage was followed quickly by BMJ. BMJ joined us after the angel investors, it was kind of a top up to the angel investors round. They were looking to the space. They, they've got a track record in BMJ careers with permanent recruitment or permanent staff. They were looking in the temporary staff space, realized there are a few players in the space. So instead of coming up with their own solution, they actually want to back one of the challengers, um, the new startups coming up. So they spoke to a bunch of us and I'm very happy that they've chosen to back us. And that was, that was a fantastic um, partnership, especially for an early stage business. But then the Series A was led by Pretora, um, a Manchester-based VC. Again, EIS fund that's focused on seed and Series A. And that was an incredible experience as well, because um, if you speak to David Foreman, he'd tell you these guys did not know how to put a deck together. Again, <laughs> back, to your, back to your point. I wasn't a great fundraiser back then. I somehow, the story, the track record... I guess the authenticity of the team that came across our pitches is what people bought into. We were terrible at putting together investment decks, even the Series A one. Got much better down the line with the Series B <laughs> round, but um, David Former would tell you, would tell you, uh, you tell me often, uh, thank God I decided to take that meeting because that deck was not impressive. Um, so there you go. Uh, learning how to put a good deck together is art and a science, <laughs> and I know you know that. So anyways, so uh, the journey with uh, Pretora was, was, was fantastic. They were really supportive throughout the Series A stage during COVID uh, and beyond. And yeah, more recently, we've done our Series B round. And that was uh, led by Perwin a, and their growth fund. So Perwin's a PE fund with a, and they had a growth fund for, for, for businesses in our stage. Uh, Pretora backed us again in this round. Uh, but the but the round was led by by Perwin and and that was our most kind of recent really update on that. 
and ask. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to give me answer to one more question before we wrap up. So you're a you're a commentator on yeah. so many workforce issues. This story of growing patchwork is so eloquent as to how you've got to where you are. You're yeah. clearly passionate about the space that you're in. If I give you one wish to grant here that something can change Ooh. with the workforce issue that we've got going on now in 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 you know, clinical medicine across the board. What do you think it is? What, yeah. what is going to change things sustainably? What would you do if you had the power to change one thing? On a policy level, universal passporting across healthcare. Interesting. Just universal passporting. Once you've got the blue tick next to your name from one hospital or one healthcare employer, you should be able to walk into any hospital in the country. We walk through airports in countries without seeing a human being anymore through a digital passport. If there's one thing on a policy we can get right at pace, I think the world of staffing in healthcare will be transformed in ways that we, that we can't even imagine yet. Two universal digital passporting is what we need. I love it. I love it. Mate, it's been a few years, I think, since we've caught up, but a heck of yeah. a lot of water under, under the bridge since then. Um, <laughs> it's incredible to see the scale that you guys yeah. have got. It's incredible to see still the passion that you have for this space. And it's been honestly an absolute pleasure catching up with you and having you on. If people want to learn more about you or Patchwork, what is the best yeah. way for them to find you and or Patchwork? Well, I'm surprised. I'm surprised. I'd be very surprised if nobody's heard of Patchwork. But uh, yeah, how do they find you all that? Oh, yeah, I'm sure many haven't. Um, so uh, our Twitter handle is at Hey Patchwork. My Twitter handle is at Anna Snader. LinkedIn, just look up Anna Snader or Patchwork Health. You'll find us on LinkedIn. So yeah, LinkedIn and Twitter is where you can keep in touch. Our website is patchwork.health. Yes, we have one of those funky <laughs> domain names. But yeah, that's, that's where we are. Love it. Thank you, sir. Pleasure. Thank you very much, James. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.